We are doing our uh, series, uh, Everyday Discipleship, as some of you know. And 1 Corinthians is our text that we are using as we go through this series. And so the passage uh, that Julian read to us today, that's the that's a text that we're going to be looking at. Some of you will remember from our last teaching that Paul began a new subject in chapter 8 that continues right through chapter 10 and finally concludes in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, as I pointed out before, this letter to the church in Corinth is very much a corrective letter because the, the Corinthian Christians were messed up. They, they were not really uh, you know, behaving as Christians ought to behave. And so Paul has a series of things that he has to address with them. And so as, we, as we've come to the eighth chapter, we looked at that last time, uh, we see that now here's the new subject matter. It's this thing about uh, eating food that has been offered to idols. And so there, there's really two things that he's, he's addressing in these chapters that we're looking at. Uh, number one, he's working through Christians navigating life in an idolatrous culture. That's kind of the bigger picture. And then secondly, how Christians are to view and relate to one another when it comes to disputed matters and personal freedom in the context of foods that were offered to idols. Now, as I pointed out, that that food offered to idols isn't anything that we really, today, at least in most of Western culture, it's not anything that we are even at all confronted with or can even in some ways relate to. I mean, when was the last time you were in a situation where you had to make a decision about whether you should eat this food that was offered to an idol or not? But in the first century Roman world, this was a big thing. And as I pointed out, for people who come to faith in the context of the Hindu or the Buddhist world, this is still very much a real thing today. So literally for people in that kind of a, of a cultural context, these verses apply very directly. Uh, for us today, they apply more or less indirectly. And so what we're going to look at is more the principle that is behind what Paul is instructing them to do. So... In chapter 8, we saw that Paul answered the second question, this question of how Christians are to view and to relate one an, to one another when it comes to disputed matters and personal freedom. And we saw uh, that Paul answered this question by warning the stronger Christians now, they were stronger in as much as they understood that idols were not really anything, we shouldn't be superstitious, 
Um, but there was a, an arrogance that was accompanying them on this. And that, that was the problem. They were the ones who they knew. So they knew better than others. And they were technically right. But then they looked down on those who didn't see things the way they saw them. And they had little patience or grace for them. And so Paul, uh, he is saying to this group of people, he's saying to them that they are not to exercise their freedom in a way that would stumble their weaker brothers or sisters. Then he says this at the end of chapter eight about himself. Now he is obviously in the category of the stronger Christian, but notice what he says in uh, chapter eight, at the end of chapter eight, uh, verse, let me see, verse 13. I have this Bible where like the lettering on the verses is so small that I need a magnifying glass to find it, but it is verse 13 of chapter eight. Look what he says. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So that's Paul's position. That's what he says to them. Now, he immediately anticipates that they're going to push back against that. They're not going to like what he says. And so, in this next chapter, chapter 9, he is going to show how this principle, and here it is, of putting the welfare of others above his rights for the sake of the gospel, he's going to show them how this works out in his own life and ministry. So, now, on the surface, it seems like, even to me, that, wow, this is, a hard, this is a hard passage to really apply. But if we understand what the real issue is here, it, it really does make it relevant to us in this moment because the real issue here that Paul is addressing is the issue of rights. And there are seven times in verses 1 through 18 Paul makes reference to rights. He says, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife? He says, is it only uh, I and Barnabas who lack the right? And he goes on, and a total of seven times he makes reference to rights. And so this is where we see that this is a word for us today because rights are a massive topic in our culture broadly, and they have also become a big issue within the church. Now, on the subject of rights, I want to quote to you from N.T. Wright, whose name is spelled differently, uh, but he's become sort of my go-to person in regard to my study here of 1 Corinthians, but he said this. He said, one of the great moral gains of the second half of the 20th century is the belief shared by most people around the world that all people are to be respected and valued. 
All people, not just some. Weak people, poor people, little people, hungry people, frightened people, people of different color, people of either sex, they all matter. And the strong, rich, big, well-fed, confident, socially advantaged people in the world have no right to do what they like with them. We say that people have rights in order to say that other people don't have the right to abuse or exploit them. But the language of rights can also be a way of asserting all kinds of other things about people being independent, being able to do what they want in every sphere of life. In fact, about having the right to be arrogant, selfish, greedy, or whatever. Now, this is true, isn't it? I mean, th this is what we see happening in the culture. We see it all around us today. Everything is about my rights, and nobody's going to infringe upon my rights. That's happening culture-wide. It is also happening in the church among Christians. This is the way this group in Corinth, who, remember, were proud of their supposed superior knowledge, is using the idea of rights. Basically, what they're saying is, Paul, don't tell us that we need to limit our rights. These people, these weaker people, and seriously, you could, you could even say they would think these stupid people should know better. And we're not going to let them restrict us from what we know we're free to do. So they are more concerned about exercising their rights than they are about the welfare of some of their fellow Christians. That is the point. That's the problem. So now here in the ninth chapter, Paul is going to show them what he does in regard to rights. And what we're gonna see is basically Paul says, you know what? Uh, for the sake of love, we should be willing to lay down our rights. And we're going to see that Paul goes, he goes far beyond what he even instructs them to do. And he begins by reminding them that he is an apostle. And here's the point. As an apostle, he would have greater knowledge than anybody because, of course, he had direct divine revelation from God. That was his apostolic gifting. And Paul had greater power than any of them because he was appointed by Christ himself as an apostle, and that was a, a power position. And so here's the question. How does Paul use this greater knowledge and this greater power? Because this group is thinking, well, we know more and because we know more, we've got more power, and therefore we know that our freedoms can't be challenged, but Paul is going to show them something different. So he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Verse 1. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? So Paul says, hey, I'm free. I've seen Jesus your salvation is due to my efforts. But yet at the same time, being in this elevated position, 
put there by God, what does he say he does? He lets go of his rights. How did he do that? Or why did he do that? Well, Paul knew that's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. And so Paul, rather than being so concerned about his rights, he's more concerned with what did Jesus do and how can I follow what he did for the sake of the gospel. Now, when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Philippi, this is what he stated regarding what Jesus did in setting aside his rights. He said in chapter two, verses five through seven, Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So what Paul is actually doing is he is seeking not to make sure he's able to exercise all of his rights, but what he's really seeking to do is to be like his Lord. So Paul has rights as an apostle, but he gladly gives them up rather than hinder the gospel. And that's what he is expressing in verses four through 12. Now, there's another interesting thing here. Paul not only has rights, but he has a scriptural basis for his rights. So it's a funny thing that he's doing here because in a, in a sense, he's, he's gonna outdo his detractors because they're insisting we're free. We, we have these rights in the gospel. And it's almost like Paul's like, yeah, okay, you're right. I'm, I'm gonna go one better. I'm gonna show you even scripturally the case for my rights. And so he does that. And I want you to see what he does. So he can build a scriptural case for his rights, yet also have times where he knows for the benefit of others, he's going to forego those rights. Now, look at verses eight through 10 with me. So verse eight, uh, Paul, Paul is asking a series of questions. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? And now, listen, do... I say this merely on human authority. Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, it is written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So Paul says, um, so again, Paul's like saying, look, do you think I don't get it that we have freedom in Christ and, and you know, we have the freedom to exercise then our rights? Do you, do you think I don't understand it? It's almost like Paul's saying, I know it better than you. I've even got more than an opinion. I've got a scriptural base for it. And he does the same thing over in 
verses 13 through 14. He comes back once again to the scripture. He says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple, speaking about the temple in Jerusalem, get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So it's pretty brilliant, really, what Paul is doing. He's, he's actually outdoing his detractors, like I said. He's, he's building a, a scriptural case. But here's his point. Even though I can build a scriptural case for my rights, it doesn't mean that I should always exercise my rights. Even though I have the freedom, even though I have biblical support for this. And that's what he says in the 12th verse. He's talking about all these different things, and he says, if others have this right of support from you, he's talking to the Corinthians who, of course, he was the founder of the church. He says, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. So this is his point. He's giving up his own rights. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So here's Paul's main, his main contention with them is, is this. It's not about your rights. It's about the gospel. And it's not about your freedom. It's about love for your brother. And it's not about what you know, because knowledge just leads to arrogance. It's about love, because love builds people up. And Paul is saying, I personally do not want to do anything that is going to prevent the building up of my brothers or sisters, or it's going to hinder that from happening. Now, I want to give um, an example that I think will be understandable by all of us by putting it in a context that we are all familiar with. So I can build a solid biblical case for a Christian's freedom to drink alcohol in moderation. I can build a case. I think it's an irrefutable case. I know there are people that would disagree. I know that there are people that insist that no, you know, a Christian, especially a Christian leader, should never drink alcohol because the alcohol in the Bible was, you know, the percentage was 25 parts water to one part wine. Uh, that's just not true. I mean, how would you even warn anybody about drunkenness if that was the case? You know, here, let's pour a gallon of water and we'll put a thimble of wine in it and tell everybody not to get drunk. So that, that's just, it's not the way it is. So scripturally, there, there isn't a prohibition against drinking alcohol in moderation. That's a biblical case. I believe it. I teach it. I support it. I don't even really use it because I'm not a drinker, but... I just want to be true to what scripture says. But listen, even though I can build a solid biblical case, there are times when for the sake of a weaker brother or sister, someone who could fall into alcohol abuse and drunkenness, I need, if I have that liberty, I need to set that liberty aside for the sake of their well-being. See, that, that's what Paul's talking about here. That is what we need to be willing to do 
we need to be willing to limit our rights to bless others and honor the gospel. Again, in a culture of rights being emphasized over and over in all around us, you find it everywhere. As I said, even in the church, this is the Christian approach to these things. I have freedom. I have rights in Christ, but the limit on those things is that I want to be a blessing to others and I want to honor the gospel. And so this is where Paul then, well, let, let me just read this, this verse here. Um, verse 18, he said, what then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So not make full use of my rights. I have the right to do this, but you know, I'm gonna forego that right because I don't want to hinder the gospel. I don't want to stumble a person or hinder them from progressing in the gospel. Now, as we come to verse 19, this is where Paul talks about becoming all things to all people. And the important thing, again, for us to recognize, this, this verse has been misinterpreted and misapplied many, many times over. Now, what, what Paul is actually teaching is that he uses his freedom to limit his freedom for the sake of saving others. So when Paul's talking about having freedom, he's talking about having freedom to not have freedom. See, because too often when people are talking about their liberty to do this or to do that as a Christian, they're talking about doing things that potentially could stumble others. And as Paul said to the Galatians, don't use your freedom as a cloak for sin. And, and some have indeed done that. I have seen this over and over and over again. And so, because Paul says, I become all things to all people, I, I've heard some people say, well, hey, you know, uh, I want to get the gospel to my friends and they like to get together and they like to, you know, smoke a little weed and just hang out and, hey, you know, God said to be all things to all men. So I just, you know, sure, yeah, pass me that joint and, hey, let's talk about Jesus. And <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what he did. It's not taking my Christian liberty and saying, wow, I can do all of this stuff with it. It's the, Paul's using this liberty in the exact opposite direction of what they're promoting. See, we have to remember that the freedom we have, it's a freedom, it's not only a freedom to do certain things, it's also freedom to not do things. Because what we never want to do is we never want to as we've already said, we never want to stumble anybody. But the other thing we never want to do is we never want to risk bringing ourselves back into bondage to something that God has already freed us from. And that's what can happen. And we have to be realistic about it. So, in becoming all things to all people, Paul is talking about giving up his own rights so as to remove any stumbling block out of the way 
of faith. So let me read verses 19 through 23 once again. Though I am free and belong to no one, so that's his position. I, I have total freedom. I have, I have made myself, even though that's my case, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many people as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. So look at the the groups of people that Paul mentions here. And he starts with the Jew. So he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Now, if you know anything, uh, you know that Paul is a Jew. But Paul is a Jew who has met Christ. So he's no longer bound to Jewish customs and culture and things like that. Jewish culture was very, I mean, it, obviously, it just permeated the lives of everybody. And it was something that... All Jewish people were expected to abide by. And it's, it's not necessarily religious. If you know Jewish people today, uh, I know Jewish atheists who still abide very strictly by, by customs that have some link back to the Bible, but they don't think of it in those terms because they don't necessarily believe in God. It's just, it's Jewish. It's the Jewish thing to do. And if you're Jewish, you do this stuff. And if you don't do this stuff, then you're in trouble with the Jewish community. So it is really a cultural issue. So as a follower of Jesus, Paul was free from the cultural trappings of the Jews, yet he would follow them among the Jews so as to not hinder any from seeing the glory of the Messiah. So that that so here's the kind of person that Paul was. Paul was a person who was sensitive, not just to those legal things, but he was sensitive to cultural things. He recognized that culture goes so deep with people that to offend them culturally, you could actually hinder them from coming to faith in Christ. And he didn't want to do that. So when he was among Jews, he wasn't exercising his freedoms like, you know, hey, look, I met Jesus the Messiah. He has made it clear that we're no longer under these trappings. You people are all still in this cultural bondage. You need to break out of that. Paul didn't go there at all. Paul just simply was like, okay, I'm with the Jews. And so I'm just going to do Jewish things. Now, where, there, where this has had application over centuries, actually, is when, and this has been very common with Westerners, you know, when Western people have gone, say, to the foreign mission field with the gospel, they have also oftentimes drug along 
the excess baggage of culture. And so they go into a different culture with the gospel, but they also expect everybody in the culture to end up being like them by adopting Western culture. You know, it's fascinating as you look at the, the history of missions, for example, and you can, you can even sometimes see the influence, and it's like a, it's a colonial influence, for example. You, you look at Africans, and, and you think of, you know, the Western missionaries that went into Africa, for example. And sometimes you can see pictures, and this, this is even still true to this very day, where you would look at the African, say, the tribe of people, and you would see them in their normal cultural context, wearing their African clothing, and, you know, they, that's very much their context. But then on Sundays, they're wearing, like, a, a Western suit and tie. And here they are in 110 degrees in these, uh, you know, under these, these coverings, and they're sweating profusely, and they're, they're all dressed up in their nice Western outfit. And this has been a massive mistake on the part of people who really did want to get the gospel to people, but also couldn't separate the gospel from their culture and thought that somehow, if you're going to receive the gospel, you've got to receive this aspect of our culture as well. One of the great missionaries in history is a man named Hudson Taylor, who went as a missionary to China. And when he got to China, he saw that this, this Western and particularly British enculturation was happening among the Chinese people. So if you became a Christian, then you became Westernized. Hudson Taylor said, this is wrong. Uh, we shouldn't be doing that. If we should do anything, we should actually become like the Chinese. And so he actually started dressing like a Chinaman. He grew his hair out. He, did, he, he put on, he just embraced Chinese culture. Guess what? He was kicked out of the mission for it. So you see, the, these are real things. And we still do this stuff today. It's not beyond us. But Paul, Paul respects other cultures. And he knows that the gospel and culture are distinct. He doesn't want to mix the two up. So he's going to make sure that he's culturally sensitive. That's the point here. So the Jews, and here talking particularly about their culture, but now he gets even more specific under the law because the Jews had their culture, but they also had the law that came through Moses. And so as a follower of Jesus, Paul was free from those laws as well. And an easy example to illustrate this with would be the kosher laws of the Jews. So the kosher laws of the Jews have to do with diet. And even to this very day, uh, Jews are very strict about the way they eat, religious Jews. And so Paul, in his freedom, he could now eat anything. But... Again, lest he stumble them and hinder any from seeing the beauty of Christ, he happily submits even to the kosher laws. So when Paul is gathering with Jewish people and they're breaking out the, the kosher food, he's not saying, 
you know, I hate this kosher stuff. Um, I just really need uh, some spare ribs right now. You guys, you guys, you know, you should try bacon. It's amazing. <laughs> He's not doing anything like that. He's sensitive. They're under the law. He's going he's gonna to be like this. So, he, he, again, the point is he's not going to stumble anybody. Then he speaks of this other group without the law. Now he's talking about Gentiles. And to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, Paul doesn't seek to impose Jewish customs or culture on the Gentiles. Now, again, as I was saying a moment ago, historically the church has done this. Well, the Jews did the exact same thing. Because in the early church, which began Jewish, Many of the Jews, especially in Jerusalem, they couldn't disconnect the gospel from Judaism. So they believed that in order for Gentiles to become followers of Jesus, they had to also become Jews. Paul said, no, that is not the case. But there were intense battles over this in the early church. And the book of Acts in the 10th chapter, we, we get the story of how... Um, the Lord sends Peter to this uh, Roman centurion named Cornelius. He sends him to, their, uh, to the house of Cornelius to bring them the gospel by miraculously giving Peter a vision where he saw this sheet that comes down from heaven and there's all of these uh, animals on it that are forbidden by the Mosaic law to eat. And the voice from heaven says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. Peter protests, Lord, I've never eaten anything like this in my life. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And the Lord's response is, don't call common or unclean what I have cleansed. And this was all in preparation for him to go to the house of Cornelius. So when he gets to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius tells him an angel has sent for him, Peter's perplexed and he says, well, you know that it's unlawful for a Jew to enter into the house of a Gentile. Now, this is, nowhere did the law say that, but that was Jewish culture at that point. And Peter gets freed up, but here's what happens. Later, and the book of Galatians tells us this story, when the gospel has gone to the city of Antioch, which is predominantly Gentile, and the church is predominantly Gentile, and Paul is the one who has you know, led the ministry there, uh, Peter comes and he enjoys, he sees the freedom, but then certain Jews come from Jerusalem and Peter, who was formerly eating with Gentiles, he draws back because he knows that the people in Jerusalem don't like this. And because why? The people in Jerusalem think that the Gentiles need to become Jews if they're going to be really good Christians. But Paul knows this isn't true. And so he has a contention publicly with Peter. He rebukes Peter. That's that, cl that classic story where that happens. But it's all around this same thing that Paul's talking about here. So to the Gentiles, Paul doesn't seek to impose these other restrictions on them. Recognizing that the custom and culture of Judaism is not the gospel. They're different things. And then the last category is the weak. Now, this is the group that the whole conversation is really about, the, the weak. 
What does Paul say? Now, the weak are the people whose conscience would not allow them to eat meat offered to idols. So the strong group that's insisting they can exercise their rights and nobody should challenge them, the strong group would look at uh, this group whose conscience would bother them and just basically they would just be like, can you guys get over this? I mean, this is ridiculous. These idols are nothing. Can't you figure that out? That, that's, it's so stupid that you're bound by this. I mean, come on, just eat the meat. But the weaker person is like, oh, you're probably right, but I don't know. I just still feel like it's, I just feel something. And, and the stronger group, rather than be compassionate or understanding, they would just hold them in contempt. And sometimes this is what we do even today. If we see somebody who has a conviction that we know that true Christian liberty would allow them to be freed from that, we talked about this in the last time, we're impatient with them. And we can even hold them in contempt and think, come on, what's the matter with you? Or those people, oh yeah, that, those people, you know, they're all hung up on legalism. Now, legalism is a real thing, and it's a bad thing. But sometimes, these days, it gets applied where it should not be applied. It's not legalism. It's just simply conviction. So, for those whose consciences would not allow them to eat meat offered to idols, the strong group held them in contempt, but here's what Paul did. Paul sympathized with them and would limit his rights so as not to offend them. See, that's what's really bothering this other group. We don't want these people to control what we do. We want, we, we're free. So here again, Paul's arguments. You're free? Well, I'm free. I'm an apostle. You know? Well, I know too. And I can even build a strong spiritual case or a strong scriptural case for my uh, position. But that's not the point. The point is, Paul put aside his own personal rights and preferences in order to remove anything that could keep someone from coming to faith in Jesus. That's radical. Paul was a radical guy. But you see, that was not only radical, that was love. That's what love does. Love does not seek its own. He's going to say that in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love does not seek its own. Love is more interested in the other than in self because this is what Jesus did. Jesus put others in front of himself. And that's what we as the people of God are to do. I think of how many in the church during the height of COVID, speaking of that in past tense now, yet last night I was having a conversation with a friend of mine in Brazil and he was telling me how horrific the COVID situation is in Brazil right now, half a million deaths. But anyway, during the height of COVID, 
many in the church missed an opportunity to do the very thing Paul is saying he does here. I'm afraid that some Christians were more concerned with making sure that no one was trampling on their rights than was showing love to their neighbor by complying with pandemic restrictions and guidelines. That's just a fact. That's a reality that some people don't even want to think about, but it is true. You know, it's, it's a sad moment, truly, when there's a crisis in the world and there's a lack of leadership and you would hope that the church could rise to the occasion and show people God's way. This is a, an opportune moment. Moments like these don't come along all that often. But what's happened during this moment? That for many, they're more convinced than ever that they don't want to have anything to do with the church or Christians because of the way they saw Christians behaving during this pandemic. With all of the insistence on my rights. You're not going to mess with my rights. You're not going to trample my rights underfoot. Well, listen, if Jesus would have thought that way, none of us would ever be saved. If Paul would have thought that way, the gospel never would have gone anywhere outside of the, the small boundaries of Judaism. And in our day and age, if the gospel is going to advance, we've got to lay down our lives and sometimes our rights as well for the benefit of others. It's true. And I'm happy some of you agree. <laughs> and if you don't, that's okay too. But listen, hopefully the next time something comes along, it's, it's kind of water under the bridge now, <laughs> kind of, not totally. But, but the next time something comes along or the next time, we don't have to wait for another pandemic, the next time we encounter a weaker brother or sister, we need to do better. We need to do better. Because as Paul says over and over here seven times, it is not about your rights. It is about the gospel. And Paul's whole point is, I'm, I'm not going to do anything to hinder the gospel. And I'm going to do everything possible that some might be saved. You see, Paul understood what was at stake. It was the salvation of people. And Paul understood that, that there were certain things that that might cause people to refuse a hearing of the gospel. You know, one of the things that Paul's arguing here on a personal level is he's saying that he preaches the gospel for free. He doesn't even take any financial compensation for it. It's not because he couldn't. He completely could, and he argues that here but he says that he refused to do it. Look at, look at verse 15. He's talking about 
his rights, the rights that come to him through what the Bible says about those who, who preach the gospel are to receive their living from the gospel. But then he says in verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. They might be thinking at this point, oh, Paul's doing like a reverse psychology on us. He really wants, he really wants us to support him financially. So, you know, he's kind of coming around it or coming to it from, from the back door, <laughs> building his case for scriptural support. But Paul, Paul can almost anticipate that that's what they're thinking. He says, I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such a thing for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And then he goes on, what is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. So this is, this is where Paul was. He's, he has a right to receive financial compensation, as I said. He just says, you know what? I don't need it. Because I don't want anybody to say that I do this for the money and therefore the gospel is just another scam by which people can get rich. Paul says, I'm not gonna risk that. I have the right to do it. The Bible gives me the right to do it, but he has chosen. So like I said, Paul is showing, so he's calling them to something that in comparison to what he does is relatively simple. Don't go to the idol temple and eat. <laughs> That's what he's telling them not to do because you're, you're gonna stumble somebody else. But then he talks about, but th this is what I do. This is, I am so concerned not to stumble anybody. This is what I do. And so, again, that I might save some. Do we want to see people saved? Do we value the soul? Do we realize that it's eternal life that is on the line here? And I think when we get that perspective and that perspective on the gospel, then we will follow the example of Paul. And, and remember, again, all of this in, is in the context of everyday discipleship. All of this is in, in the context of living as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, not for ourselves, but for him, and not for our immediate comfort, but for the greater cause of the kingdom of God. That's how we're to live. And as we close this morning, as we do each week, we're going to take these next few moments, and just let the Lord, by the Spirit, impress on our hearts today where this might apply to us. And I encourage you, just be open, be transparent. Just, just you know, as we go into this, just say, Lord, you know, if I've done this, maybe in the course of the message, you've realized that yeah, I, I've been like that. And this is a time to just say, Lord, forgive me and um, give me your heart and your perspective on these things. And if, 
you look at this and feel like, yeah, th this is kind of where I've been, that's great. Don't be proud of that, but just say, Lord, you know, keep me in that place of humility where we can continue to do all things for the sake of the gospel. So Lord, we pray as we do finish here today, we pray that you would, Lord, speak to us. Lord, as your word has gone out, now bring the application to us for our own lives. Lord, as a, as a congregation, as a, as a body of people, Lord, that we would be living in a way that will honor you, glorify you, and advance your gospel. Lord, that we would not be a stumbling block to others. That people looking on and watching us would not decide they don't want to hear anything about Christ or the gospel, but through our lives and witness, they would want to inquire further. So Lord, by your spirit, work in us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name.